Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 184, A Christmas Story. Today, we discuss the work of storyteller and humorist Gene Shepard, whose book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, formed the basis of the classic 1980s film, A Christmas Story. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need, where Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey! Hi. Nice to see you guys. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Merry holidays and Christmases. Happy Hanukkah ending to you, Todd. Thank you very much. Hanukkah just ended a couple days ago. We lit all the candles. It was lovely. Um, the greatest gift I received during Hanukkah, if I can tell you guys, was uh, listening to the previous episode where, um, <laughs> for some reason, you guys think I'm a monster and I'm not a Shel oh. Silverstein fan. Okay. Wow. We just took a guess wow wow you think i don't i feel like you, you're anti-giving tree though i feel like you've, no, you've, you've, I you've given no i love the giving it... tree oh really i love oh, okay. the giving tree okay. oh my god <laughs> for some reason i had it in my head that at one point you were like this book is fucked up and <laughs> well it is fucked up <laughs> but yeah but in a good way like, yeah in a, in a really yeah, yeah in, a, in a complex way of like oh gosh like this is not the way you think a children's story is gonna go i right. love shell silverstein i love oh, i love yeah. sylvia's mother I love his songwriting. Come on now. Yeah. And you also have the missing piece in the big O. I saw I when do. you Rage tweeted a photo. Yeah, well, look, <laughs> you know, you, I, I had sat down and was like, oh, boy, I wonder what it's like when they record on their own. Todd's off doing Todd things. What are they like without him? I speak of myself in both third and fourth person. Apparently. <laughs> and, um, within two minutes... The bad fucking energy starts about Shel Silverstein vis-a-vis wow. me. Hmm. <clears throat> I'm a huge fan. Huge fan. Massive. All right. We made you into a straw man. man. I'm sorry. It's very upsetting. Um, and I did, it, I did, though, appreciate at some point in the show, you guys mentioning Cats in the Cradle. Oh, yeah. I figured that would have come up a lot. <laughs> yeah, that would have extended the episode from 35 minutes to 65 minutes if I had been there. Yeah. Well, we uh, missed you. I missed you guys, too. I, I was off um, doing my MFA residency, which was um, on Zoom. So it was not as fun as it normally is when I get to have folks like uh, you guys come and visit. But so when we finally get to do the MFA residency in person, which hopefully is in June, but probably in December, it's going to be a bacchanal. I was going to say, it's going to be disgusting. It just, Everybody's, it's just going to become a dance club. Yeah. It's just going to be, it's just going to be like. A bunch of naked people on ecstasy dancing. Just a bunch in of. In the desert. Basically, at a resort in Rancho Mirage, just like uh-huh. screaming about their favorite poems. Oh, like poets finally let out yeah. of their houses. Oh my God. Yeah. So, but it was, it was a, a good time. Um, you know, I, I love Christmas time though. And, uh. Now that I've had to do residencies every year in December for the last 13 years, the hotel where we do it always has all this Christmas music playing and there's a giant tree. And it really gets me in the spirit to come home and nap for 10 days and and then open presents. (laughs) Incredible. Yeah. But I missed you guys. I'm glad to be back. And I I hope the listeners um, didn't believe you when you said that I didn't like Shel Silverstein. My God. The slander. (laughs) Sorry. If you're a fan of literary disco, then you're a fan of stories, and you should check out Far Away, a new short story collection from Amazon Original Stories. 
Far Away gathers five of today's most original best-selling authors for bold new takes on classic fairy tales. These are not your typical happily ever after kind of stories. These five stories for adults offer new takes on evil queens, charmless princes, and star-crossed lovers, taking old standards in new and interesting directions. The Far Away Collection is available in audio and ebook format. Amazon Prime members listen and read for free. Download now at amazon.com slash farawaystories. That's amazon.com slash farawaystories. Well, so interestingly, I, I was doing a little bit of poking around on the internet this morning uh, on, on Gene Shepard, who we're talking about, and he was friends with Shel Silverstein. No Which kidding. kind of makes sense. Yeah. They actually, like, circle around a similar vibe as far as, like, storytelling and humorous. Mm-hmm. And um, mm. So uh, the book we're talking about today is, um, is called In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. It was released in 1966 uh, by Gene Shepard, who was a, a radio host, an actor, a writer, and a monologuist. Um, and, and it's a collection of stories reflecting on his childhood in Indiana, kind of based supposedly real, but no one really knows how real or not real it is. So, you know, where it falls in the fiction, nonfiction line. Um, but it includes several stories that uh, revolve around Christmas. And in 1982, the director Bob Clark adapted uh, several of these stories to, you know, kind of combine them together to create a Christmas story, which I don't think needs any introduction because everybody has seen it. 500 million times if you've lived in America. Um, (laughs) So I thought, you know, the reason I wanted to read this is just because I was watching A Christmas Story with my son, who's right at sort of prime Christmas story age, six years old. He's about to turn six. Um, And we had watched it last year, but this year he's just been obsessed with the movie um, and wanting to watch it over and over again. And uh, I realized, like, I had never talked to anybody who had read these stories. Um, I always knew it was based on these stories. But it seems like the movie has really eclipsed Gene Shepard. Yeah. In a lot of way. Like the movie is is bigger than him and bigger than his his writing. I always kind of wondered why or, or you know if that was fair or what. So I I really I wanted to bring it up as, as something to read uh, on our show to just talk about you know disco- rediscover the stories, but then also have a chance to talk about the movie, which I just find kind of fascinating too. Yeah. Um, and and so talk about the think? presence that we always wanted and didn't get, obviously. Oh sure. Because well, <laughs> sure. sure. I've got a list. Um, you know you know what's so funny is um so i had read the the red rider story a few years ago i was teaching a class on adaptation and we looked at that story but not all the other ones um as it relates to the movie and i had had the thought then like oh you know he was sort of sedaris before sedaris right Mm -hmm. and then reading all of these stories he was sort of like he was sort of before his time you know, mm-hmm. like when you read all these stories together, he really was kind of a a Sedaris type writer that time forgot, or at least we forgot about. Because, I mean, these are subversive stories. They're deeply, deeply weird. Yeah. They they are not quite true and not quite fiction. Um, yep. And I, I really uh, appreciated them. But the adaptation... It, it's a line for line adaptation yeah. from oh, yeah. the stories. Like they just were like, well, let's just take these hundred and twenty pages and we'll just put interior house day. <laughs> on them. Right. right. Well, it's also worth we we should point out Gene Shepard is the narrator in a Christmas story. Right. He's the adult Ralphie. So when you hear those lines, they are sentences lifted completely from his book, but delivered with that 
it, you can, I just love like reading this. You could just hear his voice mm-hmm. the entire yeah. time because we have those snippets from a Christmas story. And yeah, it makes sense that he was a performer, you know, yeah. reading this. It really helps. Well, I've only seen a Christmas story. I watched it last night. Um, with Greg, my husband, who's seen it one billion times <laughs> and is like emotionally connected to yep. it. Um, yep. And that was really fun um, because we spent some good time analyzing why it was good or why it's a classic. Um, but my family was okay, so there's two 24 hour marathons on Christmas. There's a Christmas story for the cool people, and then there's Miracle on 34th Street for everybody else. So we watched that. Uh, but I mean, it was, it is cool to come in with an adult point of view on the movie. I don't think being a kid is like the ideal age for the movie. No, this, no, this is no. my entry into the discussion. <laughs> no, it's not. I think our age now is what the movie is about um, mm-hmm. or and who it's for. Yeah. Like the, the taste of the nostalgia, the flavor of the storytelling is so good. Um, it's so like right on being like, this is what it's like being a kid, but I also have this wry adult perspective that I can like perfectly modulate as each beat of the of the story needs. So mm-hmm. I think when I saw it as I probably did see it or part of it as a kid and I was just like uh, this dumb boy wants a gun, <laughs> right. whatever. And now I'm like, this is about how adults remember childhood. Right. Like, this yes. is a fantasy of childhood. The yes. fantasies in the movie are a deeper level, but even the the true, the, the nonfiction yeah. part, mm-hmm. that's still a fantasy of childhood. Right. Um. So yeah. It, yeah. Well, I I think it's I think it's the perfect family film, and that it's best watched as a family. Uh, you know, because there are two. The, the movie jumps between two very clear perspectives of the, the kid and mm-hmm. the adult and that it satisfies both, right? Yeah. Like, so watching it, and so when you watch it as a family, it is, because I remember watching it with my parents and hearing them laugh and, and ha- hearing them be like, that's exactly what it was like when I was right. a kid. <laughs> you know? And that, that was like part of the experience is being told like, this is welcome to the Christmas ritual. You're going to want ridiculous things like a BB gun or whatever. And we're going to tell you, you can't have it. You know? And it's like, there's it, it. So for like Indy watching it now, he, I think just enjoys, you know, a kid stuck his tongue on a pole and it got stuck. Right. Santa <laughs> Claus was really weird and creepy. Like he enjoys the vignettes as sort of, you know, and then he just, quotes it like my son is running around going it's a clinker and it's like, I'm like what happened here and it's like i don't have to say anything he'll just be like dad it was it was soap poisoning i'm like how do you know lines are you know so it's just it's indelible like the actual performance and the mm-hmm. direction and the, it's, it's incredible and so it works on that level but then yeah as a grown-up you're watching it and going like there's so much irony and and peter commentary peter here. billingsley is so good but, yeah. I mean, incredible. he's just incredible in that role. Yeah. Um, he's crying throughout the whole movie. The which whole I didn't movie. Like, when you watch, <laughs> the when whole watch movie. Adult, the entire movie he is bawling and like genuinely crying. Yeah. And it's like, and then he has that moment at the end where he's like, has to whip up tears. Right. And he doesn't. Yeah. And it's like, this gets incredible. Yeah. This performance is just amazing. So I think that part of the reason that I like A Christmas Story um from my current vantage point in life is I, I feel like the picture of parenting is really good. Mm-hmm. Like that they're both the parents, but particularly the mom, like she's got that like tough nagging mom thing and the warmth, but it's both at the same time. Yeah. 
And the tiny, tiny moment where she sticks the soap in her mouth after she's oh, punished her kid. Right. I'm like, this okay. is a perfect, this is perfect. It's like a jewel of a, a second um, where we just like see her reconsider or consider everything she's doing, try it out. She's curious. She's guilty. She's like everything in one. And I don't know. It's nice to see parents reduced to, you know, not reduced to caricatures, but they're really, they're complex. Right. They're, I think it's such a, like, yeah, that it, watching it the last two years has really just blown my mind about how, how much the movie gives to the parents, you know, mm-hmm. like, and how much of the movie is actually this sort of dis- debate between the two parents. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like the, the, the battle of the lamp, um, I love that. You know, the way that, that like, actually, like, I was thinking about, I actually think she wins the contest for him. Uh, because in the beginning, she's hmm. the one who calls, he's like trying to do some newspaper thing. And he's, it's like, what's the name of uh, the Lone Ranger's cousin's right. horse? And she's like, everyone knows that and says it. And I think that's the, the answer that wins him the lamp. Hmm. Um, right. And so it's like, she, and she's the unsung hero. Like, the dad has all the power in the household, but he is a mess. And she's the one, like, the moment where they're like, my mother had not had a warm meal in 30 years. (laughs) Because she's, like, constantly cooking the food. But she's also the one who is... So I was watching it, like, so much of the movie is about Ralphie wanting to, like, have access to the world of men. Like, to to be able to talk to his dad, essentially. Like, there's so... I mean, wanting the BB gun is about wanting to be... A man like wanting to to have you know some access to this world of like older masculine traditions um and he, the whole time it's like he's terrified of his father like and and his mom is the one who's like you know go help your dad with the with the car you know <laughs> right. he's like goes outside and his dad's like what are you doing here and he's like mom said i could maybe and he's like no okay fine help me and then he swears and gets in trouble right the oh fudge scene and it's like then the, the problem is he's going to be killed by his father. Like, and his, and it's, and, and, and when his mom says, where did you hear that? He has, he, he can't say from my dad who taught me how to swear and is swearing all the time. Um, and so I don't know, it's just, this is really interesting. And then like, you know, when he gets into his first fight, his mom saves him and his mom covers for him and lies to his dad because otherwise, like, I guess the implication is that his dad would beat him or, there is there is an undercurrent of possible abuse. Yeah, <laughs> that, that exists. I mean, the, his brother hides under the sink yeah. because his dad's going to kill Ralph. Right, Flick is constantly like, the, hiding under things when dad's around. Yeah, and then like you know, Schwartz, the neighbor, gets beat up by his parents wow. when he lies because he can't t- admit that his dad's the reason. Anyway, long, and then and, and anyway, the point like at the end, his dad is the one who gives him the BB gun. Right, mm-hmm. and it's like all this movie he's been manipulating and trying to and he never talked to his dad about it like he never asked his dad he never and his dad just gave it to him um and then of course he shoots his eye out so the irony is like welcome to the world of men and you're not you're not and it's not great (laughs) well it's awful i mean there's also the sort of the 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 peanutsication of his father like the idea that the father's never paying attention doesn't see because the kid's scared of him so therefore the father's the want 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 and can't and can't see him when a of course, like the father is probably not as frightening as he seems. Right. Why would the wife stay with him? They seem to have this tender moment over the leg, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like there, so, there's there's there are these scales of reality here, and right. um, you know, the father coming home and having eight glasses of wine, you know, or whatever it might be, always reading the paper. 
Well, even just the fact that he's called the old man. Right. He doesn't have a name. The right. father is just the, the old, old man. man. <laughs> Who is probably right. 40. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. Or younger. Or younger. He's probably 36. Um, but, you know, the thing that I also find interesting and amusing is, like, that that era, that like, that's Main Street Disneyland. Like, that's the era that they're trying to show you, that they're trying to no. sell you. Go okay. Ahead, Keep, finish your thought. All right. So reading the book uh, reminded me and pulled me directly into this question, and I start, had to start Googling my ass off. This takes place in the Depression. Yeah. I know. I couldn't believe that. Yeah. So this is not Main Street USA. I was like, this is this is great because there's a shabbiness to the house. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's a shabbiness to their life. And like everybody wants things and they're trying to get free shit. And in the in the book, there it's hit hard, like how snazzy Ovaltine is. Right. Um <laughs> and I just I like that element. Like I've always thought of this as a fifties yeah, setting, too. but it's it not. It's a nineteen forty. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think the the book is ob- is very clearly in the depression. I think the movie is a little bit more nebulous as to the exact mm-hmm. time. Sure. Um, which is pro- you know which makes it sort of classic Americana, right? Um, yeah. But, but when, it's radio, not television, right? But when it's, you, you know, it's definitely pre forties, right? Or right on the cusp of the forties. It's. Yeah. But when you think about, I never realized. When you think about the sort of shabby, weird neighbors, everyone's super poor. They're eating out of the garbage. Yeah. You know, like yes, like it's not a time of prosperity, and those the the poor people, the super poor people, are portrayed as as villains. Um, and then of course you think about it, you're like, well, they're portrayed as villains because they didn't have anything; they were stealing to eat. You know, mm. so there's a lot of complexity that's involved in this beyond just a simple Christmas story. Uh, yeah, well, I feel like this the book really brings out a lot of those issues. It's a it's a truly strange book. Yeah, I I, I found this very I, I found it very unsettling to read, and I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Honestly, like because it's, I mean, it, so it's structured in this really weird, uh, like kind of hokey way where it's like. The narrator, Gene Shepard, is going back to his hometown in Indiana from New York City, and he's sitting at a bar, and he runs... Oops, sorry, alarm going off in my pocket. He runs into a... He runs into a, his old buddy, Flick, who's now a bartender at Flick's Tavern, <laughs> and he just spends the day drinking there, and that is like the frame for these little monologues or mm. these little interludes, and it's kind of weirdly... I don't know. I, 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 just, I, what I, what I really liked about it was how much by the end, especially uh, class, like the things you guys are talking about, really rose to the yeah. forefront. Um, and 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 kind of brought out some of the things that bother me about a Christmas story, the movie. Kind of made them make sense um, and contextualize them in a really cool way. Um, but then there's other parts of this this nostalgic tone. And the sort of like, oh, shucks, good old boy. That is really weird, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like when it talks about women, especially like, and girls and dating. And and like, you know, and and you realize how sort of limited this world view is. And um, I I don't know, like it it made me uncomfortable at times. It was like, are we we really nostalgic for this? I mean, so, I mean, contextually, of course, this came out in 1966, Mm -hmm. written about the 1930s. um, But also... They're written in, um, you wouldn't call it literary fiction, you know, <laughs> or literary nonfiction. It it really is sort of Saturday evening posty. They all end yeah. with mm-hmm. a single paragraph that wraps it all up. You know, there's right. a moral to the story. Um, the moral to the story often is like, 
everything's horrible. On to the next thing. Um, it's a super white world, you know. Like these are these are it's a product of its of its time. Um, but I also got the sense like these were written for the radio, like just like you had said, Mm -hmm. writer. Like these were better as performance pieces than essays. Yes. And so in a way, it's sort of like Garrison Keillor. Like, oh, Garrison Keillor was charming until you found out what a fucking scumbag he was, you know? So I, yeah, this is was an interesting read. I assumed I would just love it because I love the narration of A Christmas Story so much. And I knew it was pretty word for word. But there were elements here where I was like, uh, <laughs> no like, uh, <laughs> from an essayist point of view. Um, no like. And like individual observations are super funny. Like the structures are really cool. Like I like the way that the individual flashback stories are told. But this structure where you're seeing him as an adult, like it really makes clear what is great about this kind of writing and what's bad about this kind of writing. So he's so much better at focusing this laser beam on childhood Mm -hmm. than during the adult sections. You're like, I do not like this person. You know, they're judgy. Like the first thing that happens, and of course, totally from a 2020 point of view, but the first thing that happens in the entire thing it's he's just like rails against this lady for not wanting toy guns to exist yeah like it's and rails so against california no less mean yeah <laughs> and, and i feel like i've read so many criticisms of sas being mean you know that's a common mm-hmm. complaint about david sedaris it's a common complaint about david foster wallace etc but i think if you're writing in this style whether he claims it's fiction or not whatever um you have to be super aware of how, is your judgment going so far that you seem like a humongous asshole, even if you own it. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Right. And there's points where I'm like, ugh, I don't like this observation yeah. or this generalization. Like generalizing about a kid world, saying like all kids are like tearing through Christmas presents with pure avarice. Like that's really fun. Right. Apply that as an adult to an adult. That seems like he hasn't learned, he hasn't grown up enough to, you know, apply generosity to people who are unlike him. Um, and that right. leaves a taste. And there there was one line that popped out. I mean, this is really dated, but like really offensive about gay gay people. Did you guys catch this? No. It's the weirdest where, paragraph I've ever was read it? in my life. Yeah. I cannot figure out what is going on in that paragraph. Which, which it's it's about a masculinity thing, as Ryder was talking about earlier. It's the it's it's this weird quote about Lolita. Oh yeah. Um, that, that like I was trying to wrap my head around like what is going on. Yeah, in that this? was really strange. Yeah. All right, yeah, it's like life when you're a male kid is what the grown-ups wait, life when you're a male kid is what the grown-ups are doing. The adult world seems to be some kind of secret society, blah blah blah. Okay, the next paragraph. Girls somehow seem to be already involved as though from birth they've got the word Lolita has no male counterpart. It does no good to protest and pretend otherwise. The fact is inescapable. A male kid is really a kid. A female kid is a girl. Some guys give up early in life, surrender completely before the impassable transparent wall, and remain little kids forever. They are called fags or homosexuals if you are in polite society. That is so messed up. What is happening here? Like, hold on. Lolita has no male counterpart. So it's like basically because young girls are desirable to dirty old men. Yeah. 
that girls are somehow already in the world of adulthood, which makes them better equipped to deal with it. Whereas boys, but, but if you're it's, if, if you're I, gay, I, I, it's okay right. if you're molested. Right, because if you're gay, then you're a little yeah, like, what? Right. Yeah, it's so weird. Like I was like that. That's just a college like PhD dissertation. <laughs> just be unpacking yeah. that that paragraph and what the hell is going on in Gene Shepard's head. Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of for me, what ended up kind of redeeming a lot of Gene Shepard's nasty point of view and cynicism which is what i feel like you're you're nailing um julia is that it points in two very clear directions and you know because he shows up in the beginning of the book he shows up in indiana and he's immediately judgy of all the people Mm -hmm. there like he's immediately like look at these sad sacks going to their shitty jobs making no money living horrible lives like that's the perspective and i had a really hard time with that i was like ugh. but then he you have to realize like and it, it takes a little while to to gain steam but he's equally railing against what he considers the sort of New York effete artists right? Mm-hmm. and the, and the snobbery of like other writers, you know, like I love that passage. There's a point where he's like, you know, no one in my family ever talked like an Edward Albee play. Yeah. That's a, a great moment. Yeah. You know, it, it clarified a lot for yeah. me. Yeah. And he says, he's like, no one is a Tennessee Williams, you know, in my family. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, my, my father never screamed, Damn it, woman, you're emasculating me. Right. He's like, my dad didn't know what emasculating meant, let alone that it was happening to him. You know, and it's like that that clarified a certain like thing for me, which is he's stuck in between, right? Like he as a as a narrator is criticizing both the highfalutin intellectuals and people who take themselves too seriously on on one side, and then the people who never think about their lives critically, who are just you know drunks in a, in a mill town, basically. Uh, stuck in back in Indiana. And that is like, it's a tough position. Cause like, well then who's, who are your people, man? <laughs> like, well, cause I don't really identify with either or both. Like, I don't know. It's like this weird in between zone that he's trying to occupy. And this, this is sort of my point about the main street USA. Like, like when people think about nostalgic Americana of like literally make America great again, they're talking mm-hmm. about this period of America. Yes. Yeah. Right. You know, when men were men and women cooked, and children wanted guns, and yep. there was no comp to Lolita. You know, if you weren't if you weren't raping <laughs> small children, then you were gay or something like that. You know, or and no one's ever going to talk like they're inside of a yeah. play. Like yep. it, that's like that is what we have been fighting against. <laughs> you yeah. know this right. this theory that when America was great was this period when we allowed people to be racist and sexist and all these things. Yes. Um, but where, you know, we're at the, we're walking towards innovation. We're just about to enter the, you know, the, uh, the space age. We're just coming through the atomic age. Like, all these things were happening that, you know, the greatest generation, well, the greatest generation was also filled with people coming back from a war where they had no way to deal with it and ended up, oh, yeah. you know, creating a widespread series of abuses and alcoholism, you know, like, like there are all these right. other things that were going along with it. And so a movie, the movie version of A Christmas Story, I find more subversive because it shows you very clearly like, oh, this is not right. <laughs> like there's, yeah. there's, it, it is actually a better response to the writing than the writing itself was because it's, it's yes. mocking Americana at the same time as it also makes you feel warm for this idea of family and all that other stuff. Yeah, for me, a good point of comparison to highlight that is is Home Alone, mm-hmm. which I've also mm-hmm. watched with Indy and he loves. And uh, 
I mean, I hate that movie. I've always hated Home Alone. <laughs> and to like watching it again, I just like my hatred gets even more calcified because it, it, it's sort of like in, you know, in a Christmas story, there's a fantasy sequence of him protecting his family with a BB gun right. that is just hysterical, right? Like mm-hmm. it's because it's so absurd. Home Alone is that fantasy sequence. Like Home Alone basically celebrates a sociopathic kid, you know, and his, his right to defend his house with a gun. As like a funny, like, <laughs> let's laugh at this. And it's horrifying. Whereas, you know, I feel like A Christmas Story is just dripping with irony and right. cynicism. And it is like like fantasies within a fantasy to just to, to mercilessly mock Americans who want these guns and these fireworks and this kind of... And uh, whereas like, you know, for me, like the John Hughes uh, humor from like the eighties into the nineties, like that suburban worldview is just so shockingly limited to me and like com- very, very unself-aware. Um, yeah, John, John Hughes's humor has not held up. It turns out it, it really doesn't. It really it's just, does not. Well, it, you know, it's like, he's a good writer. Like obviously he can structure a story and tell an amazing story and come up with it. And, and, and it's so popular, but it's just like when you look at the house in Home Alone, you mm. see how big it is. I'm like, who is this written about? Who are these like 18 person households of white people? Like, and how are we supposed to relate to this? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is yeah. crazy talk. It, but it really worked. Like, for whatever reason, it became the fantasy for an entire generation of like white suburban American mm-hmm. kids. Like, it's, it, it, but it really, it's, that is way more disturbing to me. Like, the sort of ink, like the hermetic the enclosure that is created by the John Hughes world is really more dangerous to me than something like this, which, you know, obviously Christmas story has like weirdly racist moments with the, you know, the waiters at the end mm-hmm. and there's obviously sexism mm-hmm. and, and this book has even more of that, but in a weird way, it feels more sort of self probing. Like it feels more self reflective and like I'm, he's not settled himself. Like Gene Shepard right. sounds like he was probably a mess <laughs> because he doesn't really quite know, like, you know, but he's, he's at least he's exploring it in a way that I think is, is somewhat productive. Yeah. And instructive. yeah. So what I think, when I think having only seen the movie a few times, um, when I think about it, to me, it's about, it's a coming of age story, but not coming of age in like a sexual way or independence way. It's a coming of age of realizing like this world is fucking bullshit. (laughs) It's all marketing. It's all all disappointing. Like life is disappointing. That's the message. It's all a commercial. Exactly. And I think that is, that's an amazing subject for essays. It's an, and it's so well connected. It's like he struck the right age, the right stories. Like he was able to draw up those feelings of being let down and like, Santa, you know, he's probably not real, but you're not going to take any chances like that exact borderline of do I believe in this world? Do I have hopes and dreams? Do I think everything's going to work out or is it all just complete (laughs) bullshit? And that's so perfect. And Home Alone has none of that. Like most Christmas movies have none of that. Um, In fact, they have the opposite. They have you think it's all bullshit, but it's all real. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And um, I'm trying to think, like, what's my favorite Christmas movie? A Christmas Story, I, I've seen, I've probably seen Christmas Story 200 times. Yeah. Um, my favorite Christmas movie might be You've Got Mail, which is just as fantastical as this is. <laughs> hmm. Wow, I haven't seen You've Got Mail since my, it came out, so I have no idea. By far my favorite. Um, every year I gather up a group of friends, not this year, of course, 
Um, and we go to this old movie theater and see It's a Wonderful Life together. Um, and I'm so... I love that movie so much. I don't know how many times you guys have seen it, but... I've never seen it. Ah! <laughs> Julia, you, you know that he wrote It's a Wonderful Life, Frank Capra did, like, five minutes from my house at the La Quinta Resort. And every Christmas time, they turn the La Quinta Resort into, what's it called? The town. I'm coming oh, so cool. next oh, so year. Cool. Bedford Falls. Yeah, they turn, so they turn um, the King to Resort into Bedford Falls. And then it's just a great time spent thinking about banking. So similarly, um, It's a Wonderful Life. You got to watch it, Ryder. I'd love to yeah. know what you think. Um, it's really about life being a major disappointment. Yes, it's a horrible um, movie. That That's what it is. That's what it's about. Um, and it's so... Like the conclusion, which I will not describe, although I'm sure you've seen it parodied a million times. <laughs> I don't think you needed spoiler alert. It's a wonderful life. <laughs> Who knows? It's just okay. He comes home and he's like, kids, kids. And he's yes. running around like, yes, but he's, he's been life, through right? a lot. It's kind okay. of like it's Scrooge, it's, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot it's, like a Christmas, Christmas Carol. Yeah. Carol. yeah okay. um, but it's much darker and he mm. doesn't actually end up getting what he wants yeah. ever. Um, wow. And so it's, it's very moving because. You are, if you're someone who feels like you had big dreams and you never did them, like, this is the movie for you. Right. <laughs> um, everybody feel that way. Yeah. yeah then this is, uh, it's it's really one of my favorites. I also rewatched The Nightmare Before Christmas this year, which I've seen like a hundred times. Um, but that is um, the best movie ever about cultural appropriation. Um, <laughs> Oh, right, right, because he's trying to take on Christmas. That's so yeah, funny. Yeah, that's that exactly is, what it is. That movie is bonkers as it's far as crazy. the actual script. Yeah. It's like, it's it's a successful, like, it works because the this music is great and the sequences are incredible, but when you actually follow the plot, it makes no sense. Well, have you watched it's, any of the like claymation? It's movie. Any of the claymation Christmas movies that we love? They don't make any sense. None of them well, make Rudolph any sense. Is pretty, Rudolph is pretty great, but no, Nightmare Before Christmas, I, yeah, we watched it around Halloween time, and I was like, this movie's kind of... It's it's thin, but it's still great. It's so great. I'm a fan. Of, I'm a fan of the Santa Claus. I gotta tell you, I'm a fan <laughs> oh, of the Santa no. Claus. That movie is horrible. I just watched it for the first time. Not don't so don't go watching Santa Claus two. Just watch the OG. I'm a fan. Oh. I'm a fan of the Santa Claus. <laughs> I like I like oh. the Rudolph movies. I like I like all the Santa claymation. I like Burl Ives singing Holly Jolly Christmas as a mm-hmm. as a puppet. Like all that Greg shit. yesterday went back in the uh, in the Wayback Machine. Hopefully, listeners know what that is, th- where you can find anything ever on the internet, um, and found this like insane claymation special from 1987. I want to say that was like it's so weird. I don't even know how to describe it. It's like animals and then weird little sketches about like Quasimodo. Very strange, like <laughs> pre 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 robot chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, Really weird. We enjoyed it. What's it called? And then of course, I don't remember. There's the oh, Star Wars Christmas, out. which Ryder got me into. Oh, Star Wars Christmas special, which they did a. I think they Lego has like a a, a new version of it. They they they're basically taking the idea of a Star Wars Christmas special and continuing it because that old classic. Oh, this is hysterical. Um, so many. Good so why ones. do we think Gene Shepard isn't like a household name beyond a Christmas story? Probably that Lolita passage. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bad one. No, I, I don't think, know. I mean, you, yeah, go for it, Julia. I think it's because of everything we've been talking about. I think he mm-hmm. probably created so much of this nostalgic American voice that 
somehow the culture adopted it as like an everyman voice and everyman yeah. story. And then his voice just became part of the air. Right. Not like right. this is one guy's point of view. Um, it's weird that we don't know him, but there's a lot of these magazine writers from this period that we don't know anymore. Yeah. All those you know, Saturday, magazine Saturday writing should people. be, yeah, it should be better remembered, but somehow it has vanished. And, you know, I don't think A Christmas Story was a hit upon release. No, it was very modest. Yeah, it, it, just, it took it, a lot It of basically time. took off in the in the VHS era. And then, you know, when mm. TNT or TBS or whoever it was started playing it 24 hours a day, like in the late 90s or something like that on Christmas. Um, well, I think the other thing is that he's not, um, he's not peculiar. You know, mm-hmm. the, he's, mm. he's writing things that are interesting and, and amusing. But they don't stand out because they're not unusual. You know, something something like Sedaris, he was unusual because, of course, he was combining um, fiction and nonfiction, quite frankly, with also performance. You know, he was doing all that stuff on This American Life. And so, you know, writers like him and Sarah Vowell and the late uh, David Rakoff, may he rest in peace, a wonderful man. Um, you know, they were writing these stories that were also performance pieces. And that really set them apart, but it also ended up, you know, um, transforming nonfiction into something like The Moth, you know, like there, there's a very clear line from This American Life to The Moth and all these storytelling series yeah. that happen around the world. And he's he's the, the reason behind it. Um, but Gene Shepard, his kind of writing, that kind of storytelling of the sort of, um, you know, Rockefeller world of, of, of yore, I, <laughs> I think is just sort of, you know, it. It was standard American writing. It didn't yeah. stand out. Well, I think like Sedaris too is so much clearer. Like every, basically every Sedaris essay is like, I'm crazy. Yes. Let me show you how right. crazy I am. Right. And then like put it, you know, like he's the crazy one. He's the one with the problems or the right. obsessions. Or And whereas I feel like Gene Shepard is less clear about that. Yeah. It's sort of like, you, like it's harder to, to pinpoint where he falls. Like, who are you criticizing here? Where does the cynicism stop? And, it, you know, in some ways it makes it kind of more honest maybe or more like true to how he actually was. But it's a little harder to nail down like, where to where to fall i i really appreciated later in the book when all the when all the poverty stuff came to the forefront Mm -hmm. i mean he has that story that is not to me funny at all i don't even know what is funny about it about the family that got evicted yeah you know they they you know the the colors the it's but what's crazy kissels yeah yeah so the kissels are this family it's a whole story about how the kissels got evicted and all their stuff was sold at auction in the neighborhood and what like what's crazy to me is that he and Flick in the present tense are looking at each other and they're like both terrified still about this event that happened. It's like economic terrorism mm-hmm. that, you know, they're, they're like suffering PTSD for And, and then there's a, another great story. This is about the movie theater in town. And it's all about like the movie theater did this plate giveaway <laughs> where they would give away dishes to wives if they came to the movies on Saturday night. And it was like this, and it, it was just it was just mind boggling to me that like stuff like this existed, you know, during the depression. That there were all these weird ways to just try and make a buck or try and provide for your family. And um, and I I I you know I wish that he had sort of leaned in a little more to that earlier, or or that all mm-hmm. the stories were sort of more obviously about like I don't know a perspective that that I can like, 
identify with or be um well so but here's the thing though it's like he's writing this about a past that everyone shared right so he's writing i guess that's the assumption that everybody shares it is the part that's weird for me right right? yeah so it's like it's it's like are you going to want to read a bunch of essays about the pandemic you know probably not and so when you think about like oh he's writing about the shared nostalgia or the shared horror of this time a lot of people experience that same thing you know what's that what's that like so you know i understand the desire but i I think too that um we're looking at it from 60 years after it happened absolutely i think the equivalent to this moment in history which is so interesting um, and I've been thinking about this a lot is I've been watching a lot of these like fuck 2020 wrap ups and like little <laughs> songs and skits. And I have an endless YouTube appetite for clicking on stuff like that. Oh. Um, call it a comedic interest. <laughs> but basically, <laughs> we're, ag- we're agreeing right now culturally on like what the story is, like right. what yeah. 2020 was and the current agreement, um, which is baking like this is getting really baked in is that. Everyone in America stayed in their house and baked bread and did all this shit and um, is getting the vaccine. Like, this is the story that we're building late late night show by SNL skit one thing at a time. When really that is not true. You know, that a lot of people have done the opposite of that. But a lot of people are in like a gray area right. um, where they've done some of those things and not others due to various level of privilege, obligation and choice. But, you know, we're agreeing on what the everyman story is, because for this period of history, just like in the Depression, we're like, well, we're all kind of going through the same thing, which is true on a certain level. And on another level, it isn't. So this this is a similar time. And I, I think people will write about it too much make too many movies about it and we'll see what the story is. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the more important question I think is we as we head toward Christmas and listeners you might well be listening to this on Christmas morning, we don't know. What was the thing that you wanted for Christmas that you never got? Oh. Ryder, what was that thing that you wanted and never got? And it could be more than one thing. I don't really remember, honestly. Oh, um, I have a list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think, you know, like I actually I remember pretty early on, like, being sad by asking for something and getting it for Christmas. Do you know what I mean? Like, just be like the anti-climax. Okay, sorry. Well, (laughs) you know, my 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 parents like they gave me. You know, like I remember being like, I I remember wanting the the big thing that I really wanted was a drum machine which was like basically an early synthesizer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, it, they, but they were really expensive. Yeah. And my parents, I remember it, my, it was my mom being like, right. Cause I was, I wanted to be a drummer. I was like taking drum lessons. I was probably eight or nine. And, and I, and you know, somehow I found out that there was a thing called a drum machine where you could make your own beats. And, and I remember just like pleading with my mom, my mom being like, we are not getting this for you unless you are serious about drumming and that this actually helps mm-hmm. you. You know, it was a lot of that. And of course, Christmas came. That was my present. I got it. And that was all I got, which fair enough. It was like a $500 or $600 thing. And I remember crying because it was the only present I got. And and then, of course, I never used it. Oh, God. So it was filled with all this shame of like, why did I ask for such a stupid present that I never, you know, and of course, never really became a drummer. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. So I for gotta... me, Christmas—that's the memory that I'm like, you know, like I, I it's, I, I just think like 
Christmas is wrapped up in a lot of shame and guilt for asking for I, that drum I gotta machine. tell you, Ryder, I've known you for like 20 years at this point. I have never heard you mention your desire to be a drummer. Oh, yeah. I, I know more about your desire to be a wolf It's <laughs> <laughs> about the same time yeah. I transitioned from wanting to be a werewolf To wanting to be a drummer yeah. Oh my god Oh man I wanted to be a wolf too And so therefore um, The thing that I always wanted But never got was a dog I was like like Aww. hardcore campaign for a dog For probably five or six years in a row And I've still never had my own dog Oh my gosh um, and I love dogs, but now I'm like just a solid cat person, and that's that. Um, but in my family, to to Ryder's point, like it is not we don't ask for specific things for Christmas. It's like a free for all of guessing yeah. and shenanigans and flub dubs, as we like right. to call them. So I I find it more fun to to be like Me too. I got one year I got all my cousins and my siblings sweaters with cats on them i was like it's the year of cat sweaters have at it (laughs) um and it is a blast but it's a very different philosophy than like here's my list right um please check it off so yeah you guys i don't know how you guys were living i had a list and i was wanting stuff and (laughs) so always disappointed we'd get the sears wish book do you guys know what the sears wish book is no so it used to be that every year at christmas time Sears would put out this catalog, and I swear to God, it was like 900 pages long. Actually, now that I think about it, I did an episode of our friend Rolf Potts' show. Um, our, our We went to grad school with Rolf, if you guys don't know, of Rolf Potts' <laughs> show where we talked about the, the Sears um, wish list. So they put out this catalog, and it's like 900 pages long, and it's everything from like tractor trailers to toys. And right. a lot of the toys are like ersatz branded toys like instead of like a really nice stereo it'd be the sears brand stereo or instead of like a polo shirt it's like a guy on a donkey shirt or whatever whatever (laughs) it might be and like i would fold down the pages of the sears wish book of the stuff that i wanted but the thing that i really wanted year after year after year that i did not get and i'm talking like i want to say like seven years in a row was a tyco night glow racetrack with the loop-de-loops Oh, yeah. Never got it. Never wow. got it. I don't know why I love- my mom thought I shouldn't have something electrified that lived in my room. <laughs> Saved you from burning down the house. Yeah. Saved me from burning down the dog, the house, everything. Oh, my God. I so wanted that Tyco racetrack. But the thing that I've come to understand is, like, you never heard other kids saying, like, I got that Tyco, and it was the truth, man. Like, that was great. So it must have sucked. Because otherwise, all your friends would have been talking about it. Well, on the opposite end of the spectrum, one thing I do know that I asked for and I got was an American Girl doll. Um, And that's still a thing. Um, They're the best. Best of the best. And girls were serious about So wait, are you going to get Vega an American doll? American Girl doll? I totally will. Um, We should read American Girl. Um, sure. I have a lot of opinions about American Girl. Is it mostly positive? A biography of Tom Petty. <laughs> this is <laughs> yeah. We can do that too. I also dolls, love Tom Petty. These are dolls that they, you sort of like adopt as little people and then dress up. Or are these dolls like the doll versions of of you? How does it work? Like what's okay? The whole... So when we do our episode on this later, because now okay. that I've brought this up, the readers will not rest until we do this. Okay. Um, American Girl is this 
doll brand. The dolls are really high quality, so they're expensive, which is why they're a coveted item. Right. Um, but the the original like group of dolls, there was like three or four, um, and they're all from a different historical era, and they all have these little books that go with them about. Um, basically social justice. They're social justice hmm. dolls. Huh. Um, but then um, they were bought out. The company was bought by Mattel, and then Mattel had, they turned it into this empire where you could get a doll that looks like you, That's which was amazing great. for sales, That's but it's sort of creepy as like you lose the idea of the historic dolls. But the historic dolls are still there, and, and there are many, many more. So there's like, um, my favorite doll was a Victorian era doll. Um, and her best friend worked in a sweatshop, you oh, know. Whoa, 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 oh, yeah. Whoa, I'm sorry. Th- this did is I, why I want to read them. Did I pass out for a minute? Did you say that you have a doll and his best friend works in a sweatshop? Yes. This, I'm, uh, everyone who's read a Samantha book knows wow. exactly what I'm talking about. So we will read them um, because all, all of them have this um, angle to them. Wow. Although they're not There's presented. There's a doll who sold her hair for $5. <laughs> the doll. <Yeah. laughs> And they go Sold up to the now. fillings in her teeth on the street. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. Every um, joke that I was about to say would have actually got me canceled. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good thing you have restraint. <laughs> I am. Anyway. I am now deeply invested in this entire American Girl um, thing, Universe. and have to read the books. Are they at all tied into Tom Petty? Like, did Tom Petty? create the name and then people started making no. toys because of the Tom Petty song? Yes, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter, at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>